Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 through 42, these are God's words. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you not to resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks of you. And from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. Amen. Thus ends this reading of God's inspired and inerrant word. We rejoice that he is glorified in his worship by blessing to us the preaching of it. Please be seated. Dear congregation, you have been rather uniquely blessed in the history of the church, or at least uh, given to live in times of comfort and liberty and earthly prosperity like almost no Christians anywhere in the world at almost no time in the history of Christianity. Uh, It would sound very strange to most believers who have walked the earth in in the age of the gospel, in the age of the spirit, to talk about maybe coming into a time of persecution soon. Uh, Four Christians have lived almost entirely under persecution and under tyranny in nations and cultures where, generally speaking, Christ was opposed and Christians for his sake. Uh, And so places like uh, 1 Peter, generally speaking, and uh, chapter 2 and chapter 3, specifically speaking, have been precious to Christians for 2,000 years, Uh, and precious especially because uh, that is the place where Christ himself is especially held out to us as our example. Uh, I think often when thinking about a trial that someone else has gone through or a trial that seems to be coming up on us, uh, we have had a tendency to uh, think and feel and wonder I do not have the faith to go through something like that. Or how can I have the faith to go through something like that? And the answer is that you don't have the faith to go through something like that. But what your faith has is Christ. And he has the faith to go through something like that. And so independence upon him and union with him, and with his spirit, with Jesus' spirit, applying his mind to you. That is how you are able to go through something with submission to God's will, saying, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. That is how you are able not to go through those things with a hostile and vengeful and revengeful spirit, but entrusting yourself to God who judges justly. This is exactly what the Lord Jesus did in 1 Peter chapter 2, where he is holding out Christ to us, where the apostle there is holding out Christ to us as an example of how to suffer abuse well. Not suffering for when we deserve it, but suffering for doing good. And that is what the Lord Jesus is teaching us about now in verses 38 through 42. How to respond when we are being abused as those who entrust ourselves to God who judges justly. Those who entrust ourselves and everything that touches us, all that is ours, unto God in Christ. And of course, unto Christ, our God, This is something with which the scribes and the Pharisees were not familiar. Uh, They who did not live by faith 
but had a law that would have led to righteousness if they would have pursued it by faith. But as we've heard in our Romans preaching, uh, they pursued it as if it were by works. And so they would twist the law to make it more keepable, to make it more in line with their flesh against which they were powerless. But this the Lord Jesus does not do. For he who is uh, our righteousness, he who presents us in heaven even now, as Hebrews 2 verse 13 says, uh, I hope you remember that in Hebrews 2 when it talks about Christ and what he is doing in our worship as he sings his his father's praise in the midst of the congregation and he proclaims God's name to you, his brethren, his brothers and sisters, even now through his servant. And as he presents us in heaven and says, behold, I and the children whom you have given me, talking about us as the children whom the father has given in this glorious eternal covenant of redemption to the son. He also says, it's put on Jesus's lips there and in Hebrews 2 and verse 13, I will put my trust in him. And so Jesus begins this section of the sermon by saying in uh, chapter 5 and verse 20, I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. That is to say that Jesus who is our right standing before God is also our right standard for what we must be made to be in order to enter the heaven that he alone has earned for us. And so we received the teaching of the law, not from the mouth of the scribe and the Pharisee, who does as so many do, so-and-so says this, and -and so-and-so says this, and indulging our hearts with what our flesh wants to do. But he teaches as they are going to marvel at the end of chapter 7. When Jesus had, had ended these sayings, the people were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. So it probably does not surprise you several sections into this part and uh, in the latter half or the latter two thirds of Matthew chapter five, that Jesus is again correcting the way that the scribes had taught the law of God. And he does it in a way that teaches us to be conformed to him who entrusted himself to God who judges justly. In verses 38 and 39, over against the teaching of, uh, of the scribes, Jesus in, teaches us to entrust our dignity to God and Christ. And then in verse 40, our Lord Jesus instructs us to entrust our rights to God in Christ. And in verse 41, our Lord Jesus teaches us to entrust our liberty to God in Christ. And finally, in verse 42, our Lord Jesus teaches us to entrust our prosperity to God in Christ. So I expect you, my beloved American congregation, to find that this chafes against your soul. For there has never been a people who are so full of their own dignity, their own rights, their own liberty, their own prosperity as the American people. But we must be those who are full of a dignity that is given to, dependent upon, and in the living God in the Lord Jesus Christ and cannot be taken by men. We must be full of rights that we have from God in Christ that cannot be taken away by any judicial system, however corrupt, we must be full of a liberty that we have in God, from God, in Christ, that no occupation or captivity or imprisonment or tyranny can take away. And we must be full of a prosperity 
that we have from God in Christ that no poverty in earthly things could ever diminish. And so the Lord Jesus here is completely overriding what our flesh would like to believe and therefore what those seeker-friendly preachers, we don't often think of them that way, but the scribes were only too glad to preach. First then, entrusting our dignity to God in Christ. We can see from the way verses 38 and 39 uh, are put in Jesus' response to how the scribes and the Pharisees uh, would quote uh, this text in verse 38. We can see how they were teaching from those scriptures. And I say those scriptures because the quote is actually from three different places. Uh, Exodus 21, 24, and uh, the book of the covenant. Uh, Leviticus 24, verse 20, uh, which we have uh, only just come through in the book of Leviticus and Deuteronomy 19 and verse 21. Three different places where the Lord is setting down penalties for personal injury done from one to another. Uh, and these penalties, as uh, as maintained then by the church state of Israel, uh, sought uh, to be just uh, and equitable, uh, not in the use of uh, equal outcomes like you are accustomed now, sadly, to hearing the use of the word uh, equitable, but a right punishment for the right offense or a right punishment for the right harm. And it was in that context, in those three different places, where God had said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now, judicial justice ought to restrain our revenging spirit. We, in our sinful nature, or in that sin which remains from our former nature, if we are believers, we want to get back at whoever has done this to us. But don't you see, don't you realize, as our James reading has just done uh, in a different context, uh, speaking of a different thing, that when you or I have that rising of heat in our heart, where we want to get someone back for what they have done, we are taking a place that actually belongs to God. God says, vengeance is mine. I will repay. And so we must be those who give to God his place. And when our heart rises up in a revengeful or bitter or hostile, resentful spirit against someone who has, uh, who has abused us and uh, uh, insulted us, uh, harmed us, we are putting ourselves in a place that belongs to God. And it was actually a mercy from God that he instituted among Israel a, uh, a judicial system that was equitable, a righteous, a just punishment corresponding to what was done. And so this judicial justice uh, ought to have restrained a revenging spirit. Not only am I not in the place of God, but even in the church and even in the state, God has not put me in the place of the magistrate who adjudicates, who, who investigates and determines guilt and who gives appropriate sentence for what has been done. And so the scribes and the Pharisees, when they taught that if someone has done to you, you could take their eye for your eye. You could take their tooth for your tooth. They were doing exactly the opposite, what God's law was designed to do. They were saying, don't you see how God himself says an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth? You are right to feel this revengeful spirit. You're right to take your own revenge, to indulge your, your hostility towards that evil person who has done that. You know, as Jesus is not denying that there's harm done. And he's not denying even that there is evil 
And indeed, that which is evil, we should call evil. And there is an indignation on behalf of God, whose law has been violated, that there that ought to be. And even and especially when others are harmed, there is an indignation on their behalf out of love for our neighbor or love for our brother. But here he warns against our own hostility for what is done to us. Because it is so instantly natural in our remaining flesh, in our remaining sinfulness, to be full of that rash anger which he has already condemned in this sermon that he is preaching, that we have been hearing sermons through uh, for several weeks now. Uh, And so he is teaching the opposite of the scribes and the Pharisees. You notice that he has not been saying, we've noticed this several times, it is written, but I say to you, he's saying, you have heard it said, but I say to you. Because Jesus is teaching with authority. He is teaching with the authority of the one by whose spirit he caused it to be written. And he is teaching the law properly. Not as those who go to the law desiring to be able to indulge a reflex of their flesh and then finding uh, remarkably what they desire. So he's reminding us here that we are not to indulge this hostility to the wicked ones. In fact, if we uh, indulge hostility to, to those who abuse us, we rob ourselves of blessings that he has already proclaimed to us. Verse 5, blessed are the meek, the lowly, the humble, the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Verse 8, blessed are the pure in heart, those who are single-minded, who say, God is my great pleasure. God is the purpose of my existence. Those who are pure in heart by the grace of Christ applied to them by his Holy Spirit, those who have that single-mindedness for God, well, they will see him. They will enjoy him. And it is hard to be single-minded when we are full of offense and bitterness. When we have been harmed, when we have been insulted, when we have been sinned against, uh, we are at risk of being consumed with that resentment and that hostility and that, uh, that bitterness. I'm sure that you have experienced this. When suddenly you're no longer thinking about how blessed you are as an heir of a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells and the God from whom and through whom and to whom are all those things. No, you become, you, you become myopically focused on what has been done to you and what is going to be done to resolve that and what is going to be done to them and even how you can bring it about. And you lose that single-minded delight in God and for his sake. A delight, by the way, that does not, does not preclude or exclude being indignant against that which is evil, but gives you another ground for that indignation, that it would be an offense against the living God who is perfectly righteous and perfectly just and perfectly good, that that which was brought into the world through the temptations of the the devil, the enemy, the great hater of God in the first place, yet continues in the world and hating it on account on God's behalf and for God's sake. Our revengeful spirit actually blinds us from the righteous form of indignation. And of course, that wonderful blessing, blessed are the peacemakers who shall be called the sons of God. And uh, the blessing for the persecuted, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And you remember when he went from the third person to the second person, blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice. And be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. 
There's something similar here to a very wise letter I uh, once heard read at the General Assembly in my former denomination where the, the assembly was in danger at that time uh, of ordaining women to the office of the diaconate and uh, one of the uh, arguments that was being made in doing so is that they serve so much and there should be uh, recognition, some official uh, capacity that is the same as the recognition that the men receive and uh, a nonsense, non-biblical idea, not even attempting to be from the Bible. Uh, and a group of ladies had uh, had written and quoting actually from a couple weeks sermons from now uh, in Matthew chapter 6 doing our good deeds in secret uh, and being rewarded by the Father in heaven who sees in secret, they had said, we are blessed more for being not recognized. Just do what the Bible says and don't take the greatness of the blessing that belongs to our lack of office away from us. Well, you need to do the same to your heart when it rises up and it wants to, and there is bitterness and hostility and vindictiveness over how you have been wounded and you can get tied up in that. You tell yourself, no heart, do not take away the blessing of the meek. Do not take away the blessing of the peacemaker. Do not take away rejoicing and being exceedingly glad when you are persecuted for righteousness sake, for doing good. And so this being hostile, this, this rising hostility in us towards the one who has delivered such injury to us is something against which we must guard Guard your heart from the hostility. Guard your heart from the resentment. Guard your heart from the bitterness. And indeed, the example that the Lord Jesus picks in verse 39, whoever slaps you on your right cheek, that was a very strong one for them. Now, we would be, you know, depending on how hard the slap is, moderately physically wounded, and we would have our, our pride and our dignity uh, offended if someone slapped us across the cheek. But this is a very specific slap. Notice the, the Lord even specifies which cheek uh, because there's a very specific form of insult in the backhand coming to the right cheek. It is not merely a, a physical attack or assault. Uh, uh, it is a uh, an insulting, a uh, denying the dignity of the person in front of you. Uh, the scribes and the Pharisees had uh, an entire list of the different uh, offenses and insults, and you know they could monetize anything like uh, like a papist priest, you know, monetizing uh, indulgences for the certain amount of purgatory. Well. The, the backhand to the right cheek was very high on the list. That was a pretty high dollar uh, item or offense. Uh, and yet, the, the Christian has a dignity in belonging to King Jesus. He is royalty of a kingdom that, uh, that his dignity cannot be taken away. Not only is he created in the image of God, he is a prince of glory under Christ, an adopted sibling of the Messiah, of the eternally glorious king. Or she is a, a princess being brought now not into an inheritance of her own, but into a union with a nobility, an inheritance of Christ's own. Now, you perhaps have... Uh, have read a book or heard a story in which someone was the great king but had not yet come to their throne. They were destined for it. Or maybe uh, they were not being recognized. Uh, they come into battle and they receive some insult, but it doesn't faze them at all. 
the person who has delivered this insult or this wound. They are shocked that the one whom they thought they had taken dignity from, the one that they had thought that they had intimidated, is no less noble after the slap, is no more intimidated after the slap. You see what the Lord Jesus is telling his disciples here. There's only one cheek left. You turn the other cheek if they give you a blow on that one too, and you still have not lost your dignity, and you still are not intimidated. You can still respond in meekness and peacekeeping and counting yourself blessed to the point of rejoicing and being exceedingly glad. You see, there is a greatness of dignity in belonging to God in the Lord Jesus Christ that completely frees you from having to have that hostile, revengeful spirit. We must trust, we must entrust our dignity to God in Christ. Verse 38 and verse 39. And so, dear children, many of whom God has assigned brothers and sisters to you in your own house, learn to know yourself as belonging to God and Jesus Christ in a way that no name-calling and no attacking and no trying to show you up and no making jokes about you can take away from you and trusting yourself and knowing yourself to be a subject of King Jesus and royalty in a kingdom that is greater than any in this world, you don't have to take such offense. You don't have to take revenge. You can actually follow Matthew 18 in the actual spirit of Matthew 18, seeing not yourself as someone from whom something has been taken away, but your brother or your sister as someone who is in danger of their sin and needs recovery. And so when you tell them about their fault, it's not a revenge mission, it's a recovery mission. And when you bring mom or dad, it's not tail-bearing, you're in trouble now. You should have said sorry the first time. But now I bring one or two witnesses and we bring the big guns. We bring dad as a witness if he's available or mom as a witness. No, you're bringing mom or dad because you weren't able to recover your brother and you need more help and, and here's the best candidate because God has especially assigned their souls to them. But how are you going to? How are you going to resolve conflict that way or insult that way or sin that way if first bitterness and hostility have arisen in your heart? Don't you see that you only damage yourself Take away your blessing. Miss opportunities for service. In the second place, the Lord Jesus teaches us to entrust our rights to God in Christ. This isn't so much about property. Uh, it would be if, uh, if it weren't a case of law. Uh, here in verse 40, if anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. Now, not all of you will have been in a situation where, uh, where you had to go to law, whether in a civil court or in uh, a church court. Uh, but those of you who have can, uh, can probably attest how easily that really, t that takes hold of all of your thoughts. It becomes all consuming. What is going to happen, uh, with that case? What is going to happen with that hearing? What is going to happen uh, with that trial. Am I going to lose my tunic? In this case, doesn't mean much to you because you're Americans and you could lose a tunic and you wouldn't even know where it went. You got an entire closet full of them. You're checking the five laundry baskets full of the, the other, uh, other clothes too. But this is, uh, this is actually I don't know if it's the exact etymology, but it's certainly related. This is someone who's worried about losing his shirt. And Jesus says, don't worry about whether you're going to lose your shirt. 
be okay even with the thought that you must you might lose the cloak too. Now, uh, clearly, uh, clearly the the Lord here is uh, not giving us uh, exact prescription for exact circumstance. Uh, the way that it is specifically phrased, permit him to have your cloak. Also, the picture would be of uh, of a tunic that is in question. Uh, and is being held by the judge, and it's going to be uh, determined who to give it to, uh, to whom to give it, uh, and uh, the disciple would then take the cloak as well. Well, all you had was a cloak and a tunic, uh, so he's not commanding the stripping of naked uh, in a church court situation. I don't mean to be silly here, uh, although. Uh, it's amazing in the misinterpretation in the history of misinterpreting scripture how silly people get. Uh, but in this case, he makes it plain that he's talking about the heart with which we respond when someone wants to sue you and take away your tunic. So there is this anticipation of the loss. And he's saying, anticipate losing it all. But anticipate losing it all with a hand that holds lightly to your rights. Not going into the trial saying, all judges must always be just and what a dreadful catastrophe it will be for me if this judge doesn't see my case rightly and decide in my favor and make sure that I get my tunic. There are many judges in this world who do not judge justly. Uh, And as we are discovering by sad uh, experience again. Uh, The further a society uh, goes from the knowledge of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, from those who have been brought to spiritual life by faith, the less justice there will be in the judicial system, the, uh, the less responsibility and wisdom and righteousness there will be, whether by magistrates, uh, who are executive or uh, or uh, legislative. But we don't have to stand upon our rights. We don't have to rest our hope for our rights upon the system, the judicial system. We have rights that are in uh, in from God in the Lord Jesus Christ, and they ultimately will not be denied us. All decisions in all courts are on final appeal. And the Supreme Court of the judgment throne of the Lord Jesus Christ will not get a single appellate case wrong. And so the believer does not have to operate in distress over what he might lose. Because if he loses it all, it was in God's providence and for Christ's sake and for his good. He walks by the faith of Hebrews 11, where you may be stripped naked and you may be sawn in two and you may be fed to lions, but you are overcoming by the blood of the lamb and the word of his testimony. Perhaps you are even in a a case right now. Maybe not an official court system case. Maybe some some form of adjudicating things or arbitrating things in your workplace. And your heart and your mind have been consumed with what if I don't get my right? Dear Christian, you will get your right. You will get your right and trust your rights to God and Christ. Do not cling tightly to them now. Again, love of neighbor requires us, requires us to care very much about the rights of others. A man who would not lift a finger in meekness in defense of himself must, in other cases, for the sake of his wife, for the sake of his children, for the sake of his neighbor, for the sake of his brother, do so. But we must be like Christ Jesus. He didn't cling to his rights, did he? 
He considered equality with God some, not something to be grasped, but humbled, emptied himself, added creatureliness to himself to take the form of a bond slave and being found in appearance as a man, humbled himself even to the point of death on the cross. He did not stand upon his rights. Surely none of his rights were ultimately taken away. The way up was the way down. In humbling himself and humbling himself to the point of death, he won that which is his right as the divine son from all eternity. He also, as the faithful Christ in time, the son of David, is now seated on the throne of glory and they worship him as Yahweh in heaven in glory now. And by the time all things are done, every single knee will bow and every single tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Yahweh, is the Lord, to the glory of God the Father. This is not a denying the existence of rights. This is a refusal to cling so tightly to them that you may be free from obsessing in your heart, that you may be free to serve our God to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's that service that we especially come to in verse 41, where the question now is liberty. And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. And you think, well, nobody can make me to go a mile. Well, you don't live under first century Roman occupation. This is actually where we get the word mile. Uh, although, you know, they must have had giant steps. I don't know how a mile ended up being 5,280 feet. Uh, but the word mile here means literally a thousand paces. And there was a law in Roman-occupied territory that uh, that if, uh, if you were from another people who were under the occupation force, any Roman soldier could compel you to carry a burden for a thousand paces. That was just the law. It's the same language and under the same statute by the way, that Simon of Cyrene is made to carry the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, And so uh, this is addressing a particular situation in which it wasn't the thousand paces and it wasn't the the weight of the burden, which is probably fairly uh, fairly significant. Uh, It's not that that is uh, the great difficulty here. The great difficulty here is the reminder that he's a Roman and you're not. That you're, that you are under the occupation of a tyrannical empire. And he says here, whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Every one of those steps, a thousand steps, you know, we're under occupation. The Romans rule us. I have no real liberty. Sure, the the Roman soldier was accustomed to the one who was having to carry the burden, not being all too pleased about having to carry the burden, counting out as they went. 998, 999, 1,000. Put it down and run back to where you were when this soldier so inconveniently uh, conscripted you, uh, compelled you to... Uh, to carry this burden a thousand paces. But now the Roman encounters a different sort of Jew. First of all, he's not counting. The Roman says, he's counting in his head. So the Roman's counting in his head. 998, 999, 1,000. The Jew keeps going. 1131, 1253, 1417. Roman can't figure out what's going on is especially in that second thousand paces, isn't it? That this believer who belongs to a different kingdom, and the Roman has no idea that this believer is not serving the soldier who who compelled him to go the thousand paces or serving the empire that made the law to compel him to go the thousand paces nearly so much as this believer is serving Christ always looking for an opportunity to serve his king, to serve his master. 
And here he is in you know, great special ops stealth for the kingdom. It's the soldier now who uh, has lost his liberty because he's being bound to a Christian, kind of like I uh, love to imagine and remember, I'm sure mentioned it in the preaching through Acts. You imagine the soldier who, who gets chained to the Apostle Paul. That guy's going to get some gospel, isn't he? And now here are the, the burdens in, in, the, in the Christian's hand. Why are you still walking, Jew? Don't you realize you were done 200 paces ago? Oh, you thought I was serving you. I'm serving King Jesus. And there's no authority on earth unless that's given to him from above. Who does that sound like? Well, that's Jesus to Pilate, isn't it? This authority comes in the providence of my king, and I'm serving him. I am not your captive, but his. And you will either answer as his enemy or become his captive too. He offers himself to you. He is the God who made all things, and he became a man to die on a Roman cross so that he might be punished for our sin from heaven as he died on that cross. And so I cheerfully carry the second mile. He's the one who told me to do it. I'm obeying him. So we entrust our liberty to God in Christ. It's going that second mile that demonstrates that ca your captivity is to Christ. You know, no one, no one can imprison you or take away your liberty if you are Christ's freedman. Whatever else they do to you, whatever else they make you do whatever other bondage you might be under and in as an earthly person, you still serve Jesus. And they cannot take away from you that you are serving Jesus. Even injury and illness for the elderly person who becomes so crippled by disease and so worried about when my mind is slower and what will I be like if I, if I lose it? I can still suffer well for the honor of Jesus and rest upon him. And even if my mind is gone and I speak gibberish or the worst of my remaining flesh comes out of me, yet I will be one whom Christ has redeemed. And the hope that anyone has considering my life will be found to be only in Jesus who saved me and not in me myself. Nothing and no one in all of your life, no matter the tyranny, no matter the circumstance, can rob you of being in service to Jesus Christ. And if you live your life looking for opportunities to serve him, looking for opportunities to bring him honor, looking for opportunities to glorify him, then you will be the freest person on earth. Because you belong to him, you have a liberty that no one can take from you. Oh, dear children, you who may have much less political and, and cultural and social liberty a few years from now, will you not train your heart now to be like that of the Lord Jesus in dependence upon him and by his spirit looking for opportunities to serve because you're serving Christ. Mom assigns to you a chore that really should have been someone else's chore. It was theirs on the chart, but you finished yours too quickly. And now she's redistributing because she's got to get things done with her little troop. And so you got extra. You say, praise the Lord, I did it quickly enough that I got extra. I get to serve Jesus more. Do you see how completely that frees you from feeling like you treat me like a slave? No, I treat you like Christ's servant. And I hope to be fair to you, but I hope to disciple you under the Lord Jesus by the blessing of his spirit to count service, joy, and pleasure like our Savior did. Christians ought not be those who view cultural and political events with dread at what we might lose. Oh, we may grieve over the inability to, to do more things for the name of Christ, but we will never have taken from us the ability to be servants of Christ wherever we end up. 
And so do not view cultural and political events at dread, with dread at what you might lose, but with optimism at the opportunities for service to Jesus that he in his providence has planned for you. You have been saved by grace through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God so that no man may boast for you are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for specific good works. And it is especially when they are not the good works that anyone else in their flesh would have desired that you can say, good works picked for me by Jesus, serving Jesus, second bile. And finally, not only are believers freed from uh, from uh, the all-consuming focus on self, by entrusting our dignity to God in Christ and entrusting our rights to God in Christ and entrusting our liberty to God in Christ, but by entrusting our prosperity to God in Christ. Very difficult for us, again, to connect culturally with verse 42 because we don't, most of us, maybe any of us, we don't have a subsistence life. We're not working today for the pennies that are going to buy tonight's dinner. And so there were many uh, in, in a culture like that, in a culture where the vast majority lived that way, literally uh, hand to mouth. Uh, the smallest uh, setback in health or uh, in property or opportunity uh, could put you in a place where you really did have, uh, uh, in addition to whatever uh, work that you might be able to do for your debt or work that you weren't able to do because uh, of your illness or your injury, you might be reduced to begging. And if you're reduced to borrowing, it's not like the way we borrow, where you know someone looks into it and, and says, oh yeah, I, I see you, uh, you have the ability to make your payments and we'll lend it to you. No, almost everyone who borrowed was unable to make their payments. That's why they're borrowing. They're borrowing in a hope, but there's significant likelihood they wouldn't be able to pay you back as much as they're committed to, as much as they desire to, however upright they are. And if that's the sort of society, then, as you may imagine, the one who, uh, by some merciful providence of God, and has a little bit more, and is able to give, or is able to lend, well, they don't have that much more. And it costs them a lot more to give than it costs us to give. It costs them a lot more to lend than it costs us, generally speaking, to lend. And I speak in generalities here for you to understand what the Lord Jesus is addressing here. Because when someone asks of you or someone wants to borrow from you in verse 42, they're really asking to, for you to put yourself at risk of not being able to feed yourself. How am I going to eat? How am I going to drink? What am I going to wear? Ah. Now we're not looking backwards in the sermon. We're looking forwards in the Sermon on the Mount, aren't we? It is God who gives to us richly and supplies all our needs. And so when God in his providence gives you an opportunity to be generous, do not lose your opportunity to be generous over worry about what you will be able to have in the future. And so just like he teaches us in verse 41 that a Christian should always should be someone who is always looking for an opportunity to serve, teaches us in verse 42 a Christian should be should be someone who's always looking for an opportunity to give. And so when, when a need arises in the congregation, we would not be those who say, oh no, this threatens my bank account. This threatens my college fund. This threatens my house fund. This threatens what I was saving in order to be able to go on that trip or to be able to purchase this thing or this upgrade to this thing. But we see a need and we have an ability we say, bless God, I'm able to give. This is why he gave me this, so that I could give. 
And when opportunity comes or need arises, he will provide for that too. You know, we are very uncomfortable with needing to be provided for on a daily basis. The Lord teaches you to be comfortable, doesn't he? What do we pray in the Lord's Prayer? Give us this day financial stability so that we will be confident of bread for the next 3,000 days. It's not what it says, is it, children? And so we must entrust our prosperity to God and Christ to live as those who are not clinging tightly to what we think are the means that are going to provide for us in the future, but as those who cling to the one who provides for us every day of our present and future. Entrust your prosperity to God in Christ. And so you see, dear Christians, how the Lord Jesus, over against the scribes and the Pharisees, who were reading the Bible in a way to reinforce that which came from our flesh, read and taught it rightly, teaching us, especially in this passage, to entrust ourselves to Christ so that our hearts will be freed from obsessing over our dignity, obsessing over our rights, obsessing over our liberty, obsessing over our prosperity. And devotion to Christ then would move our hands seeking opportunity to demonstrate the dignity of being his and the rights of being his and the liberty that we have in serving him and the prosperity we have in being generous with what he has entrusted to us. Entrust yourself to Christ that your heart may be free to devote yourself to Christ so that love for him will move your hand. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that in all of these things that you have instructed us, you are the one who has already done this in our behalf. We ask, Father, that you would receive us still through your Son whom you gave in your love that we might be your children in him. And that you would receive us as right with you by his righteousness, but oh, make us to be like he is. Make us to be children of you, our Father in heaven, by the work of your spirit of sonship, who makes us to call you Father, and who applies to us the character of your only begotten Son, so that you would be glorified in the way that your children live, even in this world, especially in this world, as those who have been freed in Christ. Glorify yourself, we pray, particularly in each heart and each mind gathered in this room, participating uh, virtually of this congregation, O oh God, we ask that Jesus Christ would be glorified in every heart and every household and in this church more, uh, and in this church corporately, we ask in Jesus Christ's name, amen.